So I want to welcome everybody and welcome all those online. And if you are just joining us uh, on Facebook or YouTube, I want to encourage you, if you want to see the entire service, we do the entire service on our website, ignition633.org. And the only reason I say that is because I want to make comment to Brooke's prayer that she just prayed. The intimacy in which she prayed for is what we talk about every week, right? Every week for, what is it, seven years now? (laughs) Probably longer than that. But it's because that intimacy holds a power in it that God wants to unleash in this world. It holds a power of what he wants to do in making his kingdom manifest here. You know, Jesus said when he was here on this earth, before he hung on the cross, that the kingdom of heaven... His kingdom was here. He, he was literally bringing it to the earth. But yet, you and I know, outside of giftings, we certainly don't see that, right? We don't see it in today's society, that's for sure. We don't see it, but it doesn't mean it's not there. But the fact is, he does want us to see it. He wants the world to see it. We've shared this many times before about the end result of him making his bride ready. Revelation 3.9, where the world literally sees how much God loves his bride and pays homage, it says in that verse, pays respect to the church, to the bride. That's never happened before in 2,000 years. Even at the beginning, the church was born into persecution. And it has seen persecution ever since. It's never seen a time of ruling. Certainly not the true bride of Christ. So see, what Brooke prayed for in terms of that intimacy with him being everything, being the most important thing, being that there is nothing else, literally is what Matthew 6.33 tells us. Focus on him. Be intimate with him. He takes care of everything else. Why? Because that is what will manifest his kingdom. And it's going to. We're going to get into some of that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We praise you. We love you so much. We thank you for who you are, Father. And I ask that you take my mouth, that you take my will, that you take everything that I am, and I give it to you to do with what you want. I ask that you speak through me this morning, Father, your will, your words, what you desire. Help there not to be any room for me in there. Because, Father, we come before your throne this morning hungry for you. Hungry for your words. Not just to learn something intellectually, but we're hungry for your kingdom. 
We're hungry for the manifestation of your love. Father, I know in my heart, I'm hungry for you to have the relationship from mankind that was ripped from you when Adam sinned. Jesus already paid for it. It's been paid for. Now you just want it walked out. Father, we worship you and praise you, guide this morning. Give us ears to ear and eyes to see because some of this stuff can be difficult to understand. Give us a mind frame to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So last night we had a worship night. It was, it was awesome. It was really phenomenal. And for those of you that were there, and I, I pointed this out at the end last night, or almost at the end, and I'm going to point it out again today. It, while Shannon was praying, I don't know if you noticed, but during that prayer, all of the sudden the prayer became declarative and became first person. And, and I knew immediately in that time that the Father was speaking through her and he said something very interesting. I shared this last night. That perhaps God would have me speak about it this morning. And I went home and, and he didn't give me that green light. And went to sleep about 12.30, woke up at 3.30, couldn't sleep. Okay, Lord, you going to give me something now? No. I want you to pray for Nigeria, though. So pray for them. Okay. And so I finally get downstairs and had a breakfast after 10 days of fasting. That was really good. And then the Lord started to speak to me and say, yes, I'm going to have you speak on that this morning. Tell Shannon you're welcome. <laughs> Shannon has, has been, been on me about this for probably a solid two months, I would say, because I keep referencing this, and, and she, she kept asking me about it, and it was the Lord just never had his timing in it. But I want to share what was declared, and I, I didn't write it down word for word, but Shannon, maybe you can help me if I'm a little bit off. I don't think I am. The Lord declared in Shannon's prayer this. He said, I declare, I want that mountain in the north. That mountain will be mine. Is that pretty close? Okay. Now, for those of you who heard that last night, and I made mention of that last night, this is really the basis for what is going on right now for what is going on for the last 2,000 years, for what has been going on in the last 6,000 years. It is a battle that began the day that Adam gave away the earth. See, he literally handed the authority to Satan, to Lucifer, in the garden when he sinned. Because our sin is agreement with the enemy. When we agree with the enemy, we give the enemy authority, right? Yes. 
Adam was given authority over the entire earth. And in that authority, he wrote down that he gives his permission to hand it over to Satan. And that's exactly what happened. That began a process that to this day has not been turned back around, even though it's been paid for. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, manifest as God the Son, right? God decided to insert himself into his own creation, became a man, walked as a perfect man, gave him his life on the cross, and he is then the offering for us, for our sin. He paid for it. He said, it is finished on the cross. It was completed. So what he paid for, even though it has not yet been seen, has already been paid for. What has not been seen? It's what God lost in the garden. It's what he lost when that was given away. It's that fellowship that intimacy, that relationship that he had with Adam and Eve. And we've talked about this many times, right? But what happened at that point was an establishment on this earth of an authority that was never supposed to be here. We call him the enemy. Because the enemy really kind of includes his whole band, his whole horde, whatever. But it really boils down to all of those who oppose God. And they have ruled ever since. And if you go through history, I'm not going to go through all this. In in fact, um, there was a series that the Lord had me do. I think it was four or five Sundays. I don't know, a couple of months ago or a month and a half ago. I encourage you to go listen to it. I can't remember what it's called. Something about a conqueror. Anybody remember? to be a conqueror or something like that. But if you want to know the history of all this, go back and listen to those because it's really important to understand the history. But what what began there was this battle. Now, in all truth, it never had to be a battle. It's not a battle because Satan or Lucifer had as much strength as God or that he's Jesus' brother. Or something stupid like that. It's not that at all. In fact, he has no power in comparison to God. But God limited himself by his own choice by giving you and I free will. See, when he made us the prize, he limited himself in your choice. He said he'll never force you to love him and never force you to choose him. He wants your love and love can only be given. It can't be taken, right? So he literally limited himself in this battle, making the battlefield, I suppose you could say equal, because it depended upon your choice. When you choose Satan, Satan wins. When you choose God, then the opposite happens. Here's the difference. We think there's a third choice in there. 
Well, I don't choose God. I, I don't choose Satan or the enemy. I, I just kind of make my own choice. I'm independent. God made me that way. And so I, I, could just, I could just choose my own things. Well, the Bible clearly says that if you're not choosing God and his ways, you're choosing the enemies. So then it became this battlefield. Right? From early on. As soon as, as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and said to go be fruitful and multiply, Satan started to get in there, started to work in pride, in, in jealousy. Obviously, we know those stories where Cain killed Abel. But then this system started of Satan craving at first them to not be gods. In other words, they can't belong to him. At best, I just want them to not belong to him. But it increased from there. From there it became a battle of one camp versus another camp. And again, I encourage you to go back to this series because Genesis 6 talks about what happened in those first centuries. I want to say probably those first 1,500 years or whatever it was. What happened was the sons of God coming down and sleeping with the daughters of men and producing this offspring. What? And, and again, I'm not going to go down that. Please go listen to it if you, if you want to get more information on that. But the reason he did that, the reason Lucifer pushed that was to build this camp, to build this army. The Bible refers to these authorities as mountains, just like it refers to governments and governmental systems as mountains. There's a reason for that. Because in ancient literature, the gods that they would worship were believed to come from mountains, right? Because most of the people would live in valleys. They would not live in the high mountains because it would get cold. <laughs> it would also be dangerous. It was very difficult to build. You know, I have a builder's background, and I'm from Colorado. The thing that I love there is, is just how they build up in the mountain. When they build literally this house on a cliff, it's just amazing to me. Thank God for technology. You know, you walk off your deck and fall 300 feet. That may not be good, but, but it's amazing. See, they didn't have that back then. Back then, the mountains were for the gods. That's where they lived. And so the, the idiom for governmental systems, the idiom for leadership systems became a mountain. Well, what's interesting is what God said, and I'm going to read it again. I declare, I want that mountain in the north. That mountain will be mine. If you look at scripture, it really boils down to two mountains that oppose each other. It's Mount Hermon, which is part of the Mount of Bashan, and Mount Zion. Now, we know a lot about Mount Zion, right? I mean, that's, that's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built on a mountaintop. And, and Mount Zion is God's city. It's the city of David. 
That is his authoritative place for his chosen people. But see, before that even existed, there was Satan's mountain. I want you to turn. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 68. Psalm 68. Because David here refers to this, and I'm, I'm going to, as best as I can, get into some of the history of what this, this stuff means. Psalm 68, we're going to start at verse 15. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan. Now, by the way, that word there, God, is, is not, uh, not Yahweh. It is not the God. It is lowercase g. It, it, and I know your, your Bibles probably have an uppercase g there. That is not correct. Okay, this is not a, uh, this is not the mountain of Yahweh. Okay, this is a mountain of God's mountain of Bashan. O many peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O many peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious. That the Lord may dwell there. What the psalmist is saying here is, is talking about this mountain, this Mount Bashan, which is a mountain range. There are three peaks. It's actually in the northernmost part of the, the, uh, the promised land. Israel never actually took it. They took portions of it, but they didn't go far enough. That's why the Lord left them there, left them there, the, the enemy there, to basically test Israel. And it was right on that borderline. If you, if you look up later, you can look up pictures of Mount Hermon and, and, and the Mount Bashan area, and it's, it's the snow-capped mountain peaks. It's snow-capped year-round. They even have a ski resort there, pretty wild. But this Mount Bashan, this many peaked mountain, is also called Mount Baal Hermon. And I want you to turn to Judges chapter 3. This talks about the name of this mountain, and it's going to give a little bit more description as to what it means. And verse 3 says, and let me just back up to 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel. This is what I was just saying. To test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. Okay, all those generations later, after Joshua and all them that had gone through those battles, the Lord left these, these nations in the north to continue to test Israel. Verse 2, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. 
These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and the Canaan and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Libo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commands of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Now, something that is interesting here is what it's called. It, it, it is Mount Hermon. If you look it up today, Mount Hermon is still the name of this mountain. It, it's, it's in what would be eastern Lebanon. And it is, of course, north of Israel. But Mount Hermon is part of a mountain range that is three peaks that are called Bashan. Back in the, the oldest text that, that we know for that area, the Mesopotamian texts, it talks about that area being, and specifically Mount Hermon, being where the gods came down in Genesis 6. That's where they came from, it said. That was the establishment of that mountain and who the authority was in that mountain. So recognize, again, according to ancient texts in Mesopotamia, and, and you've got others as well, by the way, and, and you can write these down and look them up. Um, Ugaritic texts also uses Mount Hermon and says Mount Hermon, which, which in Ugarit it's called Mount Safan, which means in the north. Okay. They considered that mountain as the mountain of Baal, or Baal. Let me tell you who Baal was. In Mesopotamian literature, way back then, okay, there was a setup of the gods. You had El. And now, this is not biblical. Please understand, I'm, this, is, this, is, this is not what we see in the Bible. I'm telling you what was believed in Mesopotamia at the time. Which, by the way, Mesopotamia is going all the way from Lebanon all the way over, I think, past Iraq. It's, it's that, whole, that whole Western Asia area uh, in, in the Bible. Paul went as far as the, the like Iraq, Iraqi area in his journeys. Okay? But that this Mesopotamia area is talking about that entire, entire area. And it, it goes back, just so you know some dates, it goes back basically to just after the flood. It goes back to Tower of Babel, which is in that area, uh, in the Lebanon area, in that valley of Bashan. And, and all of this literature that I'm talking about comes out of that area. It's the oldest found literature for that area, okay? In that, they had the supreme god that they called El, okay? Then under El was this god that they called Baal, or Baal, is, is kind of how us Americans say it, right? Okay, and Baal was his right-hand guy. He was El's who was the supreme god, his right-hand guy. And in their, uh, in their text, it talks about this disagreement that El had with Baal and vice versa. 
And so Baal went and set up his own mountain. Okay? And that became Mount Hermon, where the it is said, it is believed that these angels came down from. Now, none of this matters except for the fact that I want you to understand that geologically, Satan is setting up a throne. You understand that? Okay, Satan is setting up a throne because there is power on this earth for him to control human beings who are the prize. If we weren't the prize, he wouldn't be here. If we weren't the prize, God would not have have even created us with a will. But we are the prize. Why are we the prize? Because we were created, it says in Hebrews, for relationship. We were created for love. We were created to give back to the Creator the love that He used to create us in the first place with. That's why we're the prize. Satan is not trying to get your love, by the way, because he doesn't understand love. The Bible says he doesn't know what it means. He can't. He wasn't created for that. He just doesn't want God to have it. And it goes back to that rebellion, the pride that was found in his heart, that he wanted what God had. So he set up his own mountain in the eyes of mankind. That became Mount Hermon, or Hermon. And in that, again, you had Baal, or Baal, as the main focus of that mountain. In fact, in Ugaritic texts, it, it's interesting because Ugarit is another ancient um, culture. It was maybe a couple hundred years after Abraham was born. So it, it was developed right about the time that Israel was really being developed, right? And, and what's interesting is, is nobody knew about Ugarit until about a hundred years ago. I think it was 1920-something that it was found. And it was found that it was a new thing. And they found all these almost 2,000 pieces of literature, you know, in, in parchments. And the, the wild thing was they were, they were actually able to, uh, to understand it pretty quickly because it was very, very similar to Hebrew. It's a Semitic text. And, and so from this, they were able to gain knowledge from that area. Now, Ugarit, where it is, it's right on the northern, right over the northern border of what was the promised land back then. It was right over and right in that area of where this Mount Hermon and the Mount Bashan area, the Valley of Bashan, was from. And I, I won't get into it now. You can look at, look at it. But, but basically, when the northern kingdom, do you remember when, when Israel was separated and divided into the north and south kingdom? Right? In the south, you have Judah and I think it was Benjamin, or there, there were two in the south. Was it Benjamin? Okay. And, and then the rest were up north, and, and the ones up north, they like went haywire almost right away. You know, they left God almost immediately after the split. And the reason was, was because just over their border is where you had these Canaanite people. 
you had these people that believed in other gods, that worshipped, worshipped Baal and worshipped these other gods. And, and from that, from that, it, it changed what northern Israel, the, the northern tribe of, tribes of Israel, it changed who they were. It made them literally be for Satan's camp and not for their own. They were for a different mountain than the mountain that was established for God under his chosen people, which was Mount Zion. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, because we're going to get into here why all this, all this matters. Because, because the truth of it, actually, you know what? Well, I'll, I'll comment about this first. Here. From the beginning, when God set up relationship with man and it was stolen, God had a plan to redeem that. Said right, right there in Genesis 3 that there was a plan. There was a redeemer that would come. Now we know, we're in the future, we know historically that's already happened. Jesus was sent as the Son of God. He paid the price, as I said earlier, he fully paid the price. But you ever wonder why nothing's happened? I mean, did he just pay a price for us to live in turmoil on this earth so then we could just go to heaven and be with him? I don't know about you, that doesn't make sense to me. Why? Why? When everything he did was about victory. When everything he did was about taking that other mountain. It was about not just winning the hearts individually of human beings, but that his mountain would be supreme. His mountain would, and, and I, think I, I think I have a verse that even says that as we get into it here in a little bit, but, but his plan was always for the bride of Christ, for the people of God, for those who seek relationship with him to rule on this earth. To literally defeat and take back the mountain that was stolen by Satan. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And that, I, I know I'm just brushing over the top of some of this. I, I hope it's making sense. But I want to, I want to, in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to start at verse 20. Paul's talking here, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But in each his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. And I want you to listen to this. This is the verse I want you to key on. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
By the way, that refers to Ephesians chapter 6. It's not talking about humankind. It's talking about the demonic. It's talking about Satan himself. So again, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. By the way, let me say something there. This, this will kind of throw you if, if you don't look into this. When God raised him from the dead and ascended him to heaven, he said, sit here at my right hand while I defeat your enemies and put them under your feet, right? But that's not what it's saying here. What it's saying here is Jesus himself is, is who this is talking about. Jesus is the one who delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign, Jesus, Jesus must reign, until he has put all his enemies under his own feet. Now that can confuse you, except for the fact that you have to understand about the Trinity. That Jesus, and this is evidence of it, Jesus is fully God. He always was, always will be, fully God. He operates now as fully God, even though he humbled himself for a time, Scripture says, and made himself a little lower than the angels to become a man. To literally pave the way for you and for me to join this fight. Because it says that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That means Jesus reigns right now. Do you understand that? Wait a second, it doesn't look like it, does it? That goes back to the limiting that he did on himself to work through you and work through me. See, Jesus is asking for your partnership. He is asking for the partnership of his bride to be raising up as an army. Literally fighting the darkness. Not fighting other humans, that's not what this is about. It may play out that way sometimes, but that's not what this is about. In fact, you are fighting for them. You are fighting for their deception. You're fighting for them to understand what this real war is about. Because, see, there is coming a time, and that time is here, when the bride will get it. When they will understand that they're part of an army rising up. Interesting tagline. Right? They're part of an army rising up. And that army isn't just to pretend that one day we go to heaven and then somebody else is going to fight this war. (laughs) How about if a generation figures out that God wants it to be them? Amen. And just do it now. That's what he wants. He wants his bride to get it. It's like, it's like, guys, I want, it, it, it's that, it's that old white haired dude. I want you. Uncle Sam. Is it Uncle Sam? I won't be blasphemous and say Uncle Jesus. 
See, I said I wouldn't say that. Okay? But you know what? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. I want you. Lee, I want you. He wants you, Evan. He wants each of you to join in this fight. And guess what? You've got to figure it out first. If you don't know there's a war going on, you don't even know how to fight. And if you don't know how to fight, you may not even know to go to the person who teaches you how to fight. Because we don't fight against flesh and blood, it says in Ephesians 6. We fight against that mountain that claims this world. And by the way, has it. You might feel nice and secure in your little pocket of a, of, of a church or whatever. You insulate yourself from the rest. I know I lived 50 years of my life this way. You insulate yourself thinking, well, it's going to be, I, I can make it. I can make it until I die and then I'm in heaven and woohoo! Complete. The whole time Jesus is saying, no, I need you to get it. I need you to get it. You know, and he doesn't even need a lot. And he never begins with a lot. With Israel, you look at how often he started with one. He refers all the time to us as being Gideon's 300. And look at what they did. He doesn't need a lot. But those that he needs, he needs, to, he needs them to get it. He needs them to get it with everything that they are. Because Jesus already paid the price for the authority. He wants us to understand that we have access to that authority. And not just something that we claim it and, what is that? Name it it and claim it. I, I have authority to step on scorpions and snakes and those are demons, so demons, you can't touch me. While the entire time we just live in sin. We, we live in, in, in ways that are so separating us from God. Separating us from the very authority that we say we have. And I'll tell you what. He wants us to get it because that authority is exponential in unity. Absolutely exponential in unity. If it wasn't, Jesus would not have shown the pattern of pouring into twelve. But he taught them how important unity was. That unity literally paves the way to that power. Because he is rising an army up. He is rising an army up that will take that mountain for him. Just going back to what we said before, I want you to just real quick turn to Matthew 21 because... I've heard this before, and I, I just, I just want to want to make a statement about it. Well, those things really don't apply to us because, you know, we're not Jewish, and we're not God's chosen, 
And, and so, you know, it, it, it doesn't really apply. Um, I mean, all the, all the salvation stuff, that does. You know, but, but not this war. And I just want to read a verse to you and explain it a little bit. Matthew chapter 21, verses 43 and 44. Therefore, I tell you, and this, this, is, this is basically the parable of the tenants. And if you don't know that, you go back and read it. But where, where Jesus is telling a parable about land that's rented out and they kind of take advantage of them. They don't do what they're supposed to. And, you know, Jesus says, what would you do if, if you were the landlord? And then in verse 43, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, which is the cornerstone said earlier, it's Jesus Christ, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, this is a foreshadowing. The Lord is speaking here of that coming war, of that coming battle. But he said that because you have rejected what has now become the cornerstone, they rejected Jesus Christ, he will open it up to a people group that will serve his purpose, that will take that mountain for him. And I find it interesting that that people, people group is not a nationality. I mean, I mean, they're called Gentiles, but in reality, it's, it, can be, it can be anybody. It could be Jews. It could be anybody who believes Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That's what we call the bride, right? So I do want you to understand that God did say that he's opening up this war... That was their war. Opening up this war then to people that will fight that war. Because he wants that mountain. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 5. We talked about earlier how when Adam sinned, he... He gave away the right to the earth, right? But then Jesus purchased that right back. But what's interesting is he's never taken that. And and I said that earlier. If he did, you would see evidence of it. But he hasn't. He hasn't claimed that right, even though he paid for it. He didn't just pay for you to have eternal life. What he paid for was a reversal of what was given. The entire book of Revelation, by the way, is proof of that. Which is interesting. And, and here, we'll talk about this in, in chapter 5. We'll start at verse 9. Just read verse 9 and 10. Actually, just a few words into 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll... And to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. By the way, I used to misunderstand this. 
It doesn't mean that he made a kingdom for us, sits up in heaven, and let's just go ahead and die and be there so we could be with him. That's not where he made the kingdom. Look at what it says. He said, I have made you a kingdom. The same thing that he said when he said, in you is now the temple. You are the kingdom. What he is building in his bride, what he desires to build in those who have accepted him as Savior. You are the kingdom. We are the kingdom. We are the kingdom that he expects, desires. He wants us to take the land from the other kingdom. Does that make sense? Now understand what it says here. You are worthy to take the scroll. What scroll is he talking about? It's the scroll that is all of Revelation. It's the seven-sealed scroll. See, the reason I know Jesus Christ has not taken ownership of what he has paid for is because that scroll had not been taken yet. That was a future event. What John was seeing here was a future event. That scroll is the title deed to the earth. See, in, in Jewish history, in, in, in the way they do scrolls, there's only one type of scroll that's written on both sides. And it's a deed. It's a title deed. It's, it's an ownership scroll. And in Revelation, it talks about this scroll being written on both sides. This is an ownership scroll of the earth. It's what was given away by Adam. That was rightly given to Adam, by the way, by God. Adam gave it away. Jesus became a man, because it had to be a man, that took it back. And he paid for it. It's kind of like layaway. He paid for it, but hasn't picked it up yet. Why? Because he's waiting on his bride to get it. He's waiting on his bride to figure out that he doesn't do anything that is not in relationship with us. Right? It's because what he wants to do with us has to include us. We are the army. It said man was created in Hebrews a little lower than the angels for a time. doesn't mean that we're not supposed to fight. Because, see, we have a leader who, as we read earlier, is active in ruling and reigning until, until all his enemies are under his foot. We're to be a part of that. So Jesus is worthy to bring on the judgment or the justice of the Father. And what comes before all that we read in Revelation is what he wants to do with his bride. See, because the book of Revelation is all about showing Israel that he really is the Messiah. The book of Revelation is all about Israel. 
You have to understand foreshadowing in the rabbinical mind and all that. And and I'm not going to get into it here. You could go to past things, but understand that the the mystery that Paul reveals is the fact that Jesus is going to do all of that through his bride to literally show Israel what he wants them to have. And they will have, by the way. Every promise he has made Israel, he will make good on. The thousand-year reign is everything that has been promised. But understand that before that happens will come the reign of Jesus Christ who puts all his enemies under his feet. It will happen through his bride. And Revelation 3.9 is evidence of that. He just needs us to wake up and to understand it. I love, I'm going to point this out, just a couple more things, but talking about this mountain and this this warfare between God and Satan, I love how, I mean, you know the Lord has a sense of humor, right? You know how he enjoys the emotion of things as much as we do. And I want to share with you, that's what the transfiguration was. Okay, cool story, right? Let's, let's turn to it, in fact. Um, Matthew 17. Matthew 17, and uh, let, me, I'm, let me just read, read through the first, first few verses here. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James. And by the way, they were not in Jerusalem at this time. They, they were not there yet. I'll tell you where they were in a second. Took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And then Peter decided to put his foot in his mouth. Oh, it doesn't say that, but that was, that was my interpretation here. Verse 4, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking. I love that. When God just completely interrupted him. And he said, a bright cloud, or behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but him. It's kind of a wild thing to just read this story. And there's actually a lot in there. I'm not, today isn't the purpose of really digging into that story. It just seems like an oddly placed thing. This wasn't in Jerusalem. It was before all the things happened when they went to Jerusalem. Do you know where this happened? Mount Hermon. Does that kind of make sense to you? The father's like telling Jesus, you know that mountain that I want you to get for me? Go over there. I want to show Satan what's about to happen. This was before Jesus died on the cross. Jesus hadn't paid for it yet. I can only imagine what the Lord is telling Satan is there's not a 
thing you can do to stop this. Not a thing. The transfiguration happened. It said on the high mountain, if, if you look in the, in the Greek, it was the highest mountain. They were in the Bashan mountain range, and the highest mountain is Hermon. So that, that's where, where it happened. Very interesting how that happened. But we are coming to a time now where this army is going to figure out who they are. And they will trust God in what he says. And they will take that mountain. Again, if you look at prophecy in the rabbinical mind, it's cyclical. In other words, it's more than once. Okay? And what the mystery that Paul revealed was that what this mystery of the church, this mystery of the bride, is going to literally do what God wanted to do with Israel, as I said earlier, to show Israel that he wants to do it. Romans 11.11 says to literally make them jealous because of what God did with his bride. Now, by the way, do you, do you think that's happened yet? I mean, there's honestly nothing for Israel to be jealous of, right? I mean, clearly not, because they still don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. If you look at the bride now, the bride is so so torn apart and scattered and everything else. They're, they're the furthest thing from unified, furthest thing from power. The world looks at them like they're a joke. The world looks at Christianity and doesn't even realize what it is. Oh, well, you're a Christian if you kind of say you're a Christian. Well, I don't recall the Lord ever saying that. You're a Christian if you've given your life to Jesus Christ and accepted him as Savior. That's what makes you a Christian. But the bride, the Christians, have not lived in unity to even make Israel jealous. But it's going to happen. That's what's coming. I spent 50 years of my life believing that it's just going to get so bad that finally the tribulation's here. But thank the Lord we get raptured beforehand. And Lord, just let it get worse so I could go. What kind of sense does that make? It makes no sense. It doesn't. I, I, I laugh at my own ignorance in that. But then it makes me sad that that's how most of the bride feels. What could I do? I'm just one person. What could we do? We're just this little tiny house church. Oh, God oftentimes used just one. Just a few. It's not about the numbers. It's about the heart. And what he wants to do it's time. It's time for it now. You see it. You see it in our culture. You see it all over the world. And what the Lord says in, in the Word of God is when He brings His justice, which is literally that churning that I talked about, I want to say a couple weeks ago, or was it last week or something? That tilling of the ground, that churning up, that is the first level of this warfare 
to begin to separate. And it's done in His justice. His justice is always comes to the church first. It comes to His children first. It comes to that separation of who His children are. Not just who is saved and who is not saved, but who believes. The Bible says in Revelation 2 that it's, it's about the hot versus the cold versus the lukewarm. Who's he spit out? Not the cold. In fact, he said, I would rather you be cold or hot, not lukewarm. Because cold doesn't hurt the church. It doesn't hurt the name of Christ. But lukewarm does because, see, lukewarm thinks they get it and they put their own will into it. It's no different than the Pharisees and what they did. So what's coming against right now is that churning, that justice that is coming. I want to read, and I'm going to end with this, I think. Go to Joel. Go to Joel chapter 2. And you probably hear a number of us comment about Joel chapter 2. This is what is coming. And this is what is upon us. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread among, upon the mountains. A great and powerful people, their like has never been seen before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Then it goes in to explain what they are and what they look like. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses, they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the top of mountains. Now, by the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, these are not people. Okay, this is the Lord's, or it says that later. This is an army in the spirit. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Like war horses, they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the top of the mountains. Like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, stubble. Like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale like warriors. They charge like soldiers. They scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them and the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. This is the key. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it?
These are the tens of thousands and the thousands times a thousand that was spoken of in Psalm. This is the army that he has prepared to take that mountain. So why hasn't he? He's had the army since before the beginning of time. Because there's a partnership that he's waiting on. There's a partnership with you and I because he does not insert himself into controlling us. He will not control his bride. He paid for it, but he wants partnership. He wants us to get it. He wants us to understand that there's a calling on our lives right now. This generation, right now, to stand up, to understand this battle, to understand that Jesus, if we press into Him, He will unite us. He will tell us what to do because He's the one that will bring His enemies under His feet and literally deliver His kingdom to God, to the Father. Man, this is in our grasp. It's in our grasp. It's not something that we just have to wait through this life just to get to heaven so we can have some joy. The joy is right now. The joy is in this battle. You know, Evan Evan told me about a, a vision that he had this past week. And that's your vision. That's your vision. He had a vision of, of these angels sharpening these swords. Sharpening these swords. It's time, guys. It's time. But there's a great cost to be a warrior in this army. It'll cost you everything of who you are. Because Jesus wants everything. It'll cost you your complete yes. It'll cost you not holding back anything from Him. I'm not talking about a physical cost. I'm not talking about, you know, 150 bucks and you get to be in the army. I'm talking about your will. I'm talking about your choices. I'm talking about your faith. Have you ever thought of your faith not being your own? What a concept. I mean, yeah, it's my own because that's what pleases God. But no, he gives it to us, so it's his to give. So if you really want to believe, if you really want to expand your faith, you can't do it without coupling with him. Lord, expand my faith. Lord, I want to be in that army. I want to be one that is used by your hand. I want to believe in the impossible. I want to believe that it can happen now, even though the bride has had the opportunity to have it for 2,000 years. I want your kingdom here now. I want it to manifest. You know, what I believe this is, it is a manifesting in the physical realm of his kingdom here on earth. Because it's not just supposed to benefit us. And in the spirit, it can benefit just us. It's supposed to benefit those who we're fighting for. Those who don't know the Lord. 
Those who may not even know to know the Lord. That's who we're fighting for. We're fighting for him. We're fighting for our king. We have the opportunity here to do exactly what Israel thought was happening 2,000 years ago. And that is for him to come in power and reign on this earth with and through his bride. And that's what he wants to do. Alexis, come on up. But it's up to you. Each one of us have that choice. It comes from giving that yes. And that yes has to be our complete yes. Before we close in prayer, um, man, I was thinking about the lukewarm and how that may be confusing a little bit as to why it is such a big deal to be lukewarm. And the Lord kind of gave me a picture. When we get saved, we're actually bearing the name of Jesus on us. We carry his name. We are marked by him. And so when you carry his name and then your life is lived in vain, it carries his name to dishonor. So that's why the lukewarm has such a negative impact on the world is because we declare that we carry this name in supposed belief, but then our life is like an unbeliever. And I was thinking, you know, even Satan understands the power of that. Um, for some odd reason, I, this picture came into my mind because I recently watched the documentary on it. And Greg, I think, made reference to it in a recent message. The, um, the documentary about the, um, the workings of the MS-13 gang. And in the human realm, this, this violent, savage gang um, is a real manifestation of how Satan's kingdom works. And if you notice, one thing that they're very, very proud of is their markings. They're all very tattooed. There is symbolism that shows, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge thing of honor within their camp that they are marked for this gang, for this cause. And, of course, it's a very demonic uh, group because they literally worship um, these death gods before they go out and commit these savage acts. But Satan knows the power of being marked with something and in a, in a belonging to a kingdom. And so when a believer accepts, when a person accepts Jesus and becomes a believer and they are marked for the kingdom, he knows what destruction they can bring upon the camp of which they are marked for. Because if you understand the inner workings of these gangs, when they operate outside of what the rules are, what the dynamic is within these gangs as being marked to be part of the gang, there is horrific punishments that come to them and, of course, death. Uh, to betray. And so, you know, that kind of thinking, even though that's not how God operates, Satan understands that when you become, when you give yourself over to something, he understands total commitment. And yet believers that accept Jesus don't fully, there's a deception, and he loves that deception because he thinks that as long as we think we've got a ticket, then everything else is fine. And there's so much um, victory to be had. And I find it interesting how often we don't engage in the spiritual um, battles around us. And, and probably the most significant thing that hit me this morning, what he said, is how we have the authority to fight for other people. 
Not fight with other people, but fight for other people. And when you aren't in right standing with God, when, when our authority is hindered by our own sin because of a lack of purity in our life, we don't, ha- we don't walk in that power and authority. And faith, of course, believing that we have the authority to, to go before the throne and fight on behalf of others. It's just so important. And God has a pathway to deliver every single one of us from even things that may be a mess from our own decisions in our lives. And God has a pathway to deliver us so that we can have the authority to tread on the demonic snakes and scorpions in a, that come against our own lives. And that's so important. I know that, that as he's been teaching me authority, I said this to the ladies downstairs, as he's been teaching me more what I am allowed to do in coming before his throne and interceding on behalf of others, I am seeing more answers to prayer in breakthrough in other people's lives than I ever could by speaking to them or saying anything to them in the human realm. And we have to engage in the spirit realm on behalf of someone else in intercession when we are, when we are fighting for them. Um, and many of us feel just helpless. We have family members. We have you know, um, co-workers. Uh, schoolmates, people that are that we just feel like it's hopeless, and well, I, I want to give them a word, or I want to give them an encouragement, or I want to, you know, tell them more about Jesus. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will work through that, but what He can do when you work through prayer, when you understand the authority in right standing with God to take, to bind, and to loose, to bind the demonic, and to to loose angels around them, and and give them a fighting chance. That, as the Lord has been teaching me that. Um, that authority, it's been amazing to see the breakthrough because there's a lot. Some of you think even right now in your life, you people that you're fighting for in prayer, people that are struggling or, or that are, you know, just in the human realm might feel like a hopeless cause to become uh, a sold out Christian. And yet, oh, what, what a chance that they have when you war in prayer for them. What breakthrough that they can have. You will see so much forward motion when you understand uh, this authority, and I just want to encourage you. If you have not gone through any of the messages on the courts of heaven, um, it is not an ignition program. This is a dimension of the spirit that everyone has access to. We learned this through scripture, and we've laid it out. What it really means it's a it's an opportunity to walk with other believers into a place of purity in your life. And even in um, the removal of some of the things coming against you, because it's, there's the, the part of it that's becoming pure in sin authorities that may be in your life. But it's also recognizing and being able to discern what authorities are coming against you unlawfully in witchcraft, in curses. Do you, did you, I never would have ever thought that someone somewhere in the spirit was cursing my life, cursing certain aspects of my life. And as the Holy Spirit guides, you can come against these things and have authority to do that when you're in right standing with him. So it's a, it's a pathway to purity, but it's also a pathway to the freedom and taking the stance and really by faith knowing that we can have victory over all these things that come against us. And, and that is why we're so victorious, even though we're in a battle. So don't be confused when the Lord, when Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, that doesn't mean, as believers, we just do nothing. And we just let God do it all. You know, don't, re- don't reconcile it that way. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because on one hand, yeah, we're not supposed to take things into our own hand. 
But then sometimes the pendulum swings so far the other way, we're just like, I'm just going to chill, man. God's got me. He's going to do it. Yes and no. He's going to do it when we partner with him and give him our full yes. Because again, the whole free will thing, he won't overstep our will even though he does fight on our behalf we do have an advocate in Jesus he will always fight for us but um, but understand the courts of heaven I encourage you to go back over it because um, once that shift and that understanding comes you will see such a, a change in your prayer life actually you're going to see your prayer life increase because there's nothing like seeing God move on behalf of your prayers that makes you pray more. Um, and, of course, prayer isn't just to get answers to things you want. It's to have fellowship with him, to just commune with him, to just be, par- I mean, to be partnered with the creator of the universe, the king of kings. I mean, what, what could possibly hold us back when we're partnered with that kind of God? That is so awesome. So, I, again, go back to the – I hope you all have the app. The Ignition app, and you can pull up the messages so quickly. Um, They're obviously in other different forms of, of social media as well. But let's pray. Father God, thank you for this word this morning, God. Thank you, God, that you are building an army. God, you are building an army that is rising up, God, to to partake of all the things, all the spiritual blessings that you've given us, God, to to just be strengthened in your love, in the freedom, in the peace, in all the fruits of the Spirit that you give, God. But then to know that you have, with all of that, equipped us to come against the kingdom of darkness. All the things that, that just weigh us down, the problems of this life, the tribulation of this life, God. I, Lord, you said in John, the Gospel of John, that in this world we will have tribulation. But that we can actually be of good cheer because you have overcome the world. God, help us to recognize that. It isn't, as Greg said, a name it and claim it so that our circumstances will change. God, we know that no matter what, we are more than conquerors. It isn't a circumstantial victory. It is a victory because of who we are in you, Lord Jesus. And that is what brings out the manifestation of changes in our circumstances. So God, thank you. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for unlocking these these beautiful revelations in your word. And God, help us to engage spiritually in our life, Lord. Not to bring our worries to you and call them prayers or bring our um, our heaviness to you and 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 think that that we're just If we just kind of hang out there, that somehow it'll pass. Oh, God, you are so mighty. You are so awesome. And I thank you, God, that you meet us right where we are. You are the great defender. You are our deliverer, restorer, our healer, our champion enthroned, God. You are everything. I just give you praise this morning. And, God, I pray that you would take this word, place it so deep in our hearts that we just, um, it's just going to, Bring such a harvest of fruit, God, in our lives, in every area. And God, I pray that everyone would seek to be fully pure in the court of heaven, Lord. That they would be able to operate with the fullest authority that you give because of what Jesus paid for. And I just pray all of these things in the mighty and holy name of Jesus. Amen.